This podcast is brought to you by ReformationSites.com, church websites for a modern Reformation. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. One of the things I've wanted to do is to read Owen's work in chronological order, in sequence of publication, and to pay attention to the very many times when Owen changes his mind. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Doing well. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, as am I. We have the privilege of hosting today Professor Crawford Gribben from Belfast. He's professor of early modern British history at Queen's University in Belfast. He's written a number of books. He told us just before we started that his most recent book, which he has not yet seen, but we hope that some of you may pick up, is called Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. Did I get that correct, Crawford? Perfect. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And that is published by Oxford University Press. Maybe we'll try to have you back on to talk about that. Today, the book that we wanted to discuss was a book on John Owen. It's entitled An Introduction to John Owen. It's published by our friends at Crossway. So we're going to talk a little John Owen today. And thank you, Crawford, for joining us. Well, James, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your work and I'm glad to be here. So I wanted to begin with a a basic question about Owen. Why is John Owen worth getting to know uh, today? Obviously, there are those who are going to have an academic interest in that period of history. But for Christians who may be listening to this um, and, and perhaps don't have that specific area of historical interest, why is John Owen a man worth getting to know? That's a great question, Jonathan. Um, There's a lot of material out there from an academic perspective on John Owen. Uh, I tried to write this book, An Introduction to John Owen, uh, subtitled The Christian Vision for Every Stage of Life, published by Crossway, in the hope that it would be something that ordinary Christians, people in the pew, could pick up and learn something about about the subject of the book from. Um, I think Owen, Owen suffers a little bit because of the way that he has been presented, he's often been presented as quite a high-level, uber-intellectual um, Puritan theologian who's really devoted to the minutiae of, of the high Calvinist tradition of which he's a part. And, uh, I mean, all, all of that's true, but Owen was also a pastor almost all of his life, and he was dealing with the everyday struggles and concerns that everyday Christians had in the 17th century, and continue to have today. And if you read into some of his letters that he wrote to members of his congregation, you'll see examples of him there, for example, um, counseling um, a, a, a mother who's grieving after the loss of a young child. You know, and there, there's lots of examples like this. And so I, I wanted to, in, in, if you like, um, reclaim Owen for the ordinary Christian. And in this book, to present his teaching or, or parts of his teaching in a way that I thought might be accessible for people who are not high-flying, high-faluting historical theologians, but actually people who would maybe want to find out a wee bit more about him, but also people who'd be really encouraged by some of the really wonderful things that Owen sets out about how to be a Christian, the privileges of being a Christian, and what it means to live a Christian life. 
you talked about the fact that there's a misconception among many people today that he is this very difficult, inaccessible uh, writer who is simply concerned with uh, details, uh, esoteric, perhaps details of uh, of theology. And so that's one misconception. But what are what are some of the other misconceptions that that uh, people have today about Owen? I'm thinking of those who might be introduced to Owen through some of Puritan paperbacks or something like that, or they know a little bit about um, Mortification of Sin or one of those uh, more more popular books. What are what are some misconceptions that people have about Owen the man and Owen the theologian? Well, again, a great question, Jonathan. I mean, I think that one of the really big misconceptions people have is that he's some kind of theological egghead. And he's developing all of these very complex, sophisticated, high-level theological arguments in a world that, that has no relationship to lived realities around him. And actually, you know, once you start reading into Owen's biography, he, you know, he lived through a revolution. He lived through the failure of that revolution. Um, he was someone who was both one of the most powerful people in the country, um, one of the people in charge of the church settlement during the 1650s um, when Oliver Cromwell was in power. And he was also a, a dissenting minister living on the margins of the law after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, pastoring a congregation of 35 people, occasionally being arrested, often being spied upon, often homeless, um, off depending upon the generosity of people who had once been his enemies. Uh, you know, and, and he, he lives through an incredibly complex and destabilizing century, one of the most difficult centuries in the history of England. So I think that's one big misconception, that, that he's somehow divorced from the world around him. But I think one of the other big uh, misconceptions, Jonathan, that people have about Owen is that he accepts this particular view of theology, of scripture, at a very early age, and is 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 lucky enough if he can use that kind of language, is lucky enough to get all the answers right straight away, and holds on to that theological package through the rest of his life. And one of the things I've wanted to do is to read Owen's work in chronological order, in sequence of publication, and to pay attention to the very many times when Owen changes his mind. Why does Owen change his mind? Well, he changes his mind on lots of issues. But he changes his mind because fundamentally, Owen is a theologian who's subject to scripture. And uh, as he continues to read scripture and to find out about it, um, it's a book that's alive for him. It's God's book. It's God's revelation. He's absolutely subject to it. He depends upon the Holy Spirit to understand it. And as he moves through his life, inevitably, um, some of his conclusions he has to abandon some of his early arguments, for example, in the death of death, he, um, he, he, he turns on even five years later and denounces them as serious errors. Uh, and, and all the way that, that that's going through. I think a third misconception that people have of Owen is that he is a theologian's theologian. That's partially true. But as I said before, he's, he's a pastor. He, he's preaching to families. He's preaching to children. And I think one of the most attractive things that we see about Owen in this book and in some other unpublished material of Owen, is the way in which he writes little prayers for little children to learn, to recite in the morning when they wake up, when they eat a meal, and just before they go to bed. And this is Owen, the great prince of the Puritans, who says we should depend upon the Holy Spirit and never use written prayers. And what's he doing? He's writing little prayers for children. And crucially, he's doing that in a home in 1652, at which 
every one of his children born before that date had died. So how's he working through his grief for his own children? He's thinking about the kinds of prayers that Christian families should teach their children to pray. It's a really moving episode. There's many moving episodes in Owen's life, and I think that's one of them. I wonder if on that, the, the child mortality rate, uh, Owen outlived all 10 of his children, um, the last dying just a year before he did. Um, if that, I wonder, well, maybe you could comment on how you call this the experience of defeat. That's one, that's a domestic defeat, the loss of your own progeny. Um, he outlives his first wife. Um, he outlives his ascendancy uh, under Cromwell uh, to then be uh, sort of, as you say, living on the margins of the law. Um, and I wonder if you could, and yet, and yet he's probably not like a modern sort of therapeutic type, you know, that has to, in a certain sense, there's a, there's an outward look and an earnestness, I think about uh, godliness and the future. And I wonder if you could comment on how all these manifold experiences of defeat shape John Owen on the spiritual life? Uh, thanks, James. That's a, that, that, that's a super question. So you're referring there to the subtitle of a, a book I wrote on Owen back in 2016, which was a much bigger book, maybe four times the length of this and a bit more academic. So um, so it, it's different from this book. But w- one of the things I argued in that book was that his whole life had been an experience of defeat, that he was born into the, a Puritan family in the Church of England after the defeat of the Puritan movement at the end of Elizabeth's reign. Um, that he was then part of a civil war and preached through that, that he then identified himself with a a revolutionary government under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell, which collapsed in 1660. And so in his mid-40s, everything he's invested his life in is suddenly a liability. So every success he had earned is suddenly a danger to him. In his mid-40s, he has to start again. And he starts again... Um, in you know, on the outskirts of a city, uh, London, in which every time he enters that city, he sees parts of the cadavers, parts of the corpses of his friends who have been executed in the most horrific way on public display at the entrances in and out of of the city of London. So you know, the, the experience of defeat is visceral for him. I mean, visceral in a very literal way, right. um, v- v- visceral for him. And that really shapes, I think, a movement in Owen's life and thinking from what might we might see as the triumphalism of some of his preaching in the 1640s when everything's going his way and when providence is so easy to interpret because all of the, all of the great victories the Civil War um, is giving to the parliamentarian cause are obviously signs of God's support. But that theology of providence collapses after the restoration, because he he can no longer understand what's happening to England, or rather what's happening to the godly in England. And eventually, uh, towards the end of his life, he says that this is the, the, the greatest failure of his life, that he has been unable to discover why the cause that God seems so obviously to bless in the 1640s and 50s, that God should apparently have turned his back upon that cause in the 1660s and thereafter. And so I think you see a movement there from the triumphalism of his preaching, the sermons that we have in the Banner of Truth Edition in volume eight, to a much humbler, much more careful, much more biblical, and I think actually much warmer, much spiritually warmer type of preaching in the sermons that we find in volume nine and also in volume 16 of the Banner of Truth Edition. 
um, he, he he's preaching he's preaching in the 1640s to thousands of people at a time or to the members of parliament gathered together as an assembly in the 1660s and thereafter he's preaching to these tiny persecuted groups of dissenters living on the margins of the law um, often living actually in very close proximity to one another, sometimes sharing houses with each other because of the, the incredible difficulties that they faced. And Owen is preaching to them, not in an abstract way, but in a warm, caring, pastoral way, dealing with the difficulties um, that they were facing, but also pointing them to the delights of knowing Jesus Christ as their saviour and, and redeemer. You know, with the you mentioned the, the banner of truth set, and oftentimes... Uh, I don't know how many actually end up accomplishing this, certainly a smaller percentage than, than set out to do it. But uh, I, I've met men who will, who will start to work from volume one and try to work their way through Owen in that way. But, but I think it, it sounds as if one of the truths that you're trying to bring to bear is the fact that we need to also read these in the historical context in which they were written. And they're not simply abstracted from any context at all, although truth is truth, but particularly when it comes to his sermons, reading them, uh, with respect to the the historical backdrop is is critically important to to getting at who Owen was and even even what it was that 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 animated him. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, Jonathan. I mean, obviously, we can read Owen apart from critical context. So we could anyone can pick up his book on communion with God, for example, and find that to be encouraging, informing, stimulating. You don't need to know anything about Owen or his life or times just to know. That is a classic book of spiritual theology that every Christian should read. But I suppose the danger of just beginning in volume one of the big green set produced by Banner Truth and, and thinking, you, you know, you're going to somehow going to work your way through it is that you're, you're not going to know which of those books Owen no longer agrees with. Hmm. So, you know, I think we owe the Banner Truth a huge amount. Where would we be without them? But in some ways it was a mistake for them to publish as a standalone volume, The Death of Death. Because Owen turned his back on some of the arguments he developed in that book within five years and denounced them as serious errors. Um, so, you know, someone could read The Death of Death and come away from that with the view that Owen believed that God could have forgiven sins just by the snap of his divine fingers. Whereas actually by the 1650s, Owen says, no, it took the death of a redeemer for our sins to be forgiven. So I think there are dangers in choosing the wrong Owen material to read first. I mean, if obviously, you know, you can read it from um, 1643 till his death 40 years later. You can read it in order if you want to. Not many people have time for that. So I think it's really good if people have the Banner Truth set to read the classic works. Uh, there's a reason why they are the classic works. They are the best. Um, and also, I think, to read the sermons in volume nine, which are, are not often read, but I think are some of the warmest, kindest, and most encouraging material that Owen leaves behind. So along those lines then, where would you advise someone to begin if they if they perhaps even read uh, your introduction and are or or, or listen to, to something like this interview and and realize that they've heard enough about Owen that they want to read something by him and, and uh, understand what what the big deal is, so to so to speak. Where where would you have them begin? You mentioned volume nine. That's that's a uh, that's a great recommendation, but I'm wondering what works you would consider to be the seminal works that must be really reflected upon. Yeah, it's a great question, Jonathan. I mean, I suppose you could you, you could read Owen 
as someone who is basically encapsulating reform tradition up to that point. But then you're reading him just to find out what you could find out from anyone else. Does yes, that make yes. sense? So a- another way of reading Owen is to ask yourself the question, what's his distinctive contribution? What is it that I can only learn from Owen? And, you know, James has written stunningly of, of Owen's um, theology proper, for example. Um, you've done work on, on assurance and so forth. Now, I, I think that, that the things where Owen really excels are in terms of spiritual theology. His book in Communion with God is, is a book, as, as I said before, that's accessible, informative, wide-ranging, powerful, but also distinctive, very, very distinctive. Um, his book on um, one of his last books, The Glory of Christ, is, is a book that he's writing as he is preparing for heaven. And again, is, is full of these, you know, really powerfully moving passages about the hope that we have of seeing Jesus Christ. So, you know, I would I would focus on on, on some of those issues, uh, some of those publications, I should say. Um, I, I do think that perhaps some of the other stuff is is maybe not as helpful to point people to, at least not in the early years of reading Owen. If I think you want to get a sense of his freshness and get a sense of excitement from Owen um, about what really drives and propels him. And I think ultimately that is um, his commitment to a life in submission to scripture, but a life that has as its focus point um, this experience that he anticipates for many, many years before it happens, the experience of being with and seeing Jesus Christ as Savior. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Gibbon, and thank you for your, your ongoing work. I look forward to your latest book that you told us about and, and would commend the, uh, the, Owen, the little Owen book by Crossway to our listeners. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for taking an interest. Thank you. So James, we're in a privileged position to be able to talk to so many um, interesting people through the, the show, but uh, certainly he is... Uh, um, well, he's a leading light in in the scholarship of of Owen and and of that period in general, and so uh, just a real delight to to have Professor Gribben on with us today. And, and you know, for for all the good his scholarly work does, this little book is accessible. We really would put it into anyone's hands. I think the the world of uh, Owenia, as we call it. Right. Uh, the study of John Owen, which of all 17th century English theologians, you know, you might say Owen's been done. Um, and so the question might come up like why? And, and some of the doing has been yes. uh, Dr. Gribben's own doing his own scholarly works and monographs. But he he um, contrasts this work to his previous one. He called the previous one a theological biography and he calls this one yeah. a biographical theology. Uh, and I think I think that his desire is to see is to see people appreciate Owen as a Christian who is, of course, a careful theologian, but that that's being worked out through a lived experience of fortunes and failures, um, humanly speaking. Um, and I think in that respect, and this you also I'm sure listeners can just hear this in our conversation with Dr. Gribben. I think that he understands something about Owen as a regenerate Christian seeking to commune with the triune God and to enjoy the glory of Christ Jesus, um, not simply to reflect and produce volumes, um, but really to pastor and convey that uh, to his fellow Christians who are seeking uh, the city whose builder and maker is God. And I think 
that Crawford Gribben is one of those scholars who actually gets Owen, uh, if, if I can put it like that, um, at that true level of living faith. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And, and Owen is one of those men who the more you study him uh, and understand the circumstances of his life, and, and frankly, I, I owe a great debt to Crawford Gribben for showing this to me, the more you say, I would never trade places with him. I'm hard pressed to imagine being able to endure what, what he endured. Uh, just a life full of many intense failures and, and from a human perspective and instances of suffering. And yet, as you mentioned, I think you kind of uh, dipped your toe in the water on this uh, when we were on with him earlier. Uh, he doesn't come across as someone who's obsessed with working this out we're working this out in some kind of therapeutic way. You, you don't, you don't actually get it when you, when you read him. Owen doesn't say sit down and listen to my story because he, because his moral authority, and this I think goes back to something uh, that Dr. Gribben hit a few times in our talk, his moral authority to say these things actually comes from the scriptures themselves. Yes. Um, not from his lived experience. I think that that shapes his appropriation uh, of the of the scriptures and his his attempt to apply them to his life and the lives of others, but his moral authority is not so much lived experience as it is um, rightly handling the word in his lived experience. Yes, yeah, but knowing I will say this, unlike some biographies that you read that that actually uh, make the writer's work less appealing, I, I found just the opposite. It, it's even more attractive and more uh, engaging when you realize just what was happening in his life. Right. That he's, he's writing about heaven and he's writing about communion with God uh, in the face of the death of his own immediate family members. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, as I mentioned, when he was still on, we could go on for, for a long time about this book, about uh, Dr. Gribben's work, about John Owen in general, but that's all we have time for today. We are thankful to all of our listeners. We appreciate hearing from you, so feel free to write us if you have questions or suggestions. Also, if you have the opportunity to rate and review this podcast on, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that, that helps us get the word out. And if you're in a position to donate, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. We'd also like to offer you an opportunity to have a chance to win the book we were discussing today, An Introduction to John Owen by Crawford Gribben, published by Crossway. And if you uh, are interested in that, you can go to PlaceForTruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, give us your information, and we will enter you for a chance to win that book. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. So you'd like to do more with your church's website, especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches like yours reach out more effectively. With beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful service, and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. 
take advantage of this month's special offer of 50% off the website setup fee by using the code 2021 to redeem the offer. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to reformationsites.com to get started today or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.